the, the bottom line of the story really is this. There is no country on the face of the earth where my success could have happened except in the United States of America. And I've said this publicly and I've said this privately. For someone in a first generation who can come to this country with nothing, start from zero, and end up being a three-star general and the greatest fighting force the world has ever known, the Marine Corps, we have problems here in this country. We have challenges here in this country, but there's still tremendous opportunities in this country. And we just got to find our way to get to the top. up everybody thank you guys for being here my name is Sophia I'm a talent recruiter at Breakline Education and I'm here with my absolute partner in crime Kenny Vaughn the director of Breakline Apex and we would love to welcome you to another episode of the Breakline Arena now I, I don't know about you Sophia but I am very excited about this episode because I had the privilege of interviewing what I would consider this gentleman to be a national treasure. Mm. Lieutenant General, retired, Vincent Stewart, the 20th Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and just a phenomenal career of service in the Marine Corps. What were your thoughts on this episode? I mean, just... What a guy when, you know, sometimes when you hear leaders speak about humility and how how that affects their leadership style, you don't normally see it play out in live action the way that we do in this episode. So, you know, Kenny is interviewing with Lieutenant General Stewart, and I feel like they're hanging out. I feel like they have been friends their whole (laughs) lives. And it's just, you know, it's a man who just worked so hard while no one was watching. He's so humble. He's so joyous. He's so approachable. He has spent and dedicated his career to creating uh, basically a a tree of people who have benefited from his mentorship. And he really is all about bringing up the next one in line and sort of, you know, identifying excellence and really mentoring it in such a way that people reach their full potential. So I was absolutely dazzled by that part, Kenny. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the themes that I really love from this episode was just the arc of the story of his life. Yeah. I mean, he is first-generation immigrant from Jamaica. He speaks very vividly about what the American dream means to him. Mm-hmm. And he also, it almost comes full circle with the release of his op-ed that he released in June 2020 in response to some of the national tensions that were taking place. Mm-hmm. And the the op-ed is entitled, Please Take Your Knees Off Our Necks So We Can Breathe. And to hear him speak so vulnerably about his experience as a black man Mm -hmm. in America, in this moment, it was tremendously moving. And I'm so excited for our viewers to be able to gain that insight from a leader who is respected, from a leader who is giving it to you raw, giving it to you unfiltered and really stepping out to speak his authentic truth. And I think it's just such a cool thing to see. It was, it was absolutely mesmerizing. I can't wait to share this episode with you guys. So 
You know what I think we should do, Kenny? Hey, without further ado, let's dive on in. I want to make sure I say just a couple of things. For all my veterans, thank you. Not, not just because you served, but because of the sacrifices that so many of us endured to put away things that we may have wanted to do, but we wanted to continue with the team. So the service and the sacrifice and the commitment and the things that we have done to make our nation and the world more secure, I just want to say my personal thank you to all of our veterans. And then the other thing I'll tell you is I only know two people who have ever said no to me. One was Gabe. So you might want to ask him why in the world would he say no to me because it really crushed my spirit and I've not recovered since. And then the third thing I would tell you all is that to just pile on to what Dr. Rice said about democracy, regardless of which side you came down on, 150 million Americans participated in this year's election. To me, that's a good thing. It's a great thing when we participate. It's a great thing then we can have our ideas, whatever they are, voiced and represented by someone. And so if, if you didn't vote, I'm just thankful for the 150 million Americans who did vote. And, and this democracy thing is an experiment, but it is an experiment that designed by imperfect men uh, just striving to form a more perfect union and we all need to continue to participate in this process. Okay, Kenny, it's back to you. It's all yours from here. Sir, you must be a mind reader because you that was actually the perfect segue into the first question that I wanted to ask you. And you have such an interesting story. As we talk about the American dream, as we talk about the pursuit of the American ideals, I wouldn't mind if you would for us just kind of unpacking your origin story. I know at the age of 12, you and your sister immigrated from Kingston, Jamaica to Chicago in pursuit of the American dream. So for those who might not be familiar, can you share a little bit about your great American story? Well, we bought into this story. We bought into the idea that uh, America was the land of opportunity. And I often tell folks, I don't see a lot of folks uh, trying to migrate to Moscow or, or Beijing they're all trying to get to America because this is where opportunity exists. And so when my sister and I landed initially in New York, I genuinely do not remember us having luggage. I remember we had what we had on our backs. We had no special privilege, no special compensation. We had no, we had no loyalty, we had nothing. And so uh, we were starting from zero, ended up in Chicago in November. So visualize going from the tropical island of Jamaica in November to Chicago on the north side in November with the hawk coming off the lake and just cutting right through your body. And so, as I told one group earlier today, we went into what most people would consider substandard, almost ghetto housing, but it was far better than anything that I had in Jamaica. You know, got an opportunity to get a scholarship to play football. So I got an education for free, and it was all about working hard, getting an education, striving for what we said about the American dream was, if you put in the work, you put in the hours, you get an education, you have a chance. So the, uh, the chance translated from getting a football scholarship to being recruited by the Army ROTC captain on the campus of Western Illinois University 
which interestingly enough is the home of the Fighting Leathernecks. They actually own the rights to that title of Fighting Leathernecks. The Marine Corps does not. And so I've been a Leatherneck for uh, most of all of my adult life. And the Army recruiter tried to get me uh, all kinds of trinkets and baubles. He'd send me to jump school and jungle warfare school and all these other things. Uh, but the Marine recruiter came along and said, uh, we're not promising you anything. We'll send you to officer candidate school. We'll see what happens next. So actually, I did the Army ROTC for six weeks in Fort Knox, Kentucky. I came home for about two weeks and did the Marine Corps officer candidate school and realized that there was a big distinction, uh, separation between the Army and the Marine Corps. In the Army ROTC uh, course, I felt uh, mildly challenged, you know, formation run with the slowest person uh, setting the pace. And in the Marine Corps training, it was, you're going to get your back, back broken each day, but you're going to feel better at the end of every day that you've accomplished uh, something. So I, I decided to go with the Marine Corps. I was going to do it for about three to five years and then retire and go get uh, uh, wealthy you know, collect of some of the gold that's on this uh, U.S. streets uh, paved with gold. 38 years later, I finally decided to hang it up. But the, the bottom line of the story really is this. There is no country on the face of the earth where my success could have happened except in the United States. Of America. And I've said this publicly and I've said this privately. For someone in a first generation who can come to this country with nothing, start from zero, and end up being a three-star general in the greatest fighting force the world has ever known, the Marine Corps, to have the opportunity to run large organizations. I don't care. The Brits wouldn't let you do that because if you're not from the House of Lords, you're not going to get to the top. If you don't have royalty, you're... so there's nowhere in the world my success is possible. And I tell that story and I drag it out a little bit because those of us who feel like there might be something better someplace else, I've been to 40, somewhere between 40 and 60 countries in the world. We have problems here in this country. We have challenges here in this country, but there's still tremendous opportunities in this country. And we just got to find our way to get to the top of the pyramid. And I'll stop there. To hear the, the desire and the grit in, in what you just shared was deeply profound. You talk about the pursuit of education and hard work and a desire for self-improvement and to be the living proof that that is possible. So that's such a powerful testimony. So I appreciate you sharing the, that. The back, the back side of this story though, Kenny, is the sacrifices my mom made. Because mm. my mom came to the country uh, about a year prior to, the, to us coming, working two and three jobs just to make ends meet working as a housekeeper, working at a hotel in the kitchen. And she was determined that her children were going to have the opportunities that she never had. At best, she had a sixth grade education, but probably the smartest, most profound woman I've been around. I, I can't put a price on the insights of my mom. And and big part of this was everything else can be taken away from you, but your education. Mm. What you learn in school, you know, no one can strip that away and go, okay, we come to repossess your car. We come to uh, take over your... They can't take away that education. And with that education, you can experience all sorts of things that you could, you could never go to Egypt, but you can read about it. So she was a huge uh, portion of my life.
You chose to serve our nation for nearly 40 years. What does military service mean to you? Actually, there's, there's uh, two parts to this, at least two parts. I am a believer in national service. I think it makes you a better citizen. And I don't mean everybody needs to be in the Marine Corps. I, I, I don't care if you go to the park services or the postal service. I, and I know it's not a popular thing in the United States to talk about national service. So when, when I decided to give back just a little bit to my adopted country, like I said, I had no intention of spending my entire adult life doing it. I was going to do it for three or so years. And I fell in love with the Marine Corps. I fell in love with the men and women who I served with. And I tell people now that I wear a bunch of ribbons and medals. I didn't earn any of them. The people who worked for me and around me earned every single one of them. I just happened to be the guy that they said, okay, let's give this award to the commander. And I think a lot of times the commander gets more credit than they deserve. But you also know that you sometimes get more blame than you deserve. You can train an organization exquisitely, and if they make a mistake, we all know that you're responsible for everything that your unit does or fails to do. So there's plus and minuses uh, to that side. But I, I'll tell you, like I said, I, I had no intention to stay long. I fell in love with the Marines. Absolutely amazed me with the things that they could do. I demanded excellence of those Marines, and they never, never at any time failed me to live up to the expectation. The Marine Corps then challenged me, gave me some opportunities to lead organizations. I was blessed to lead from uh, as a platoon leader, as a second lieutenant all the way up to being a three-star general and I led or commanded at every single level. I didn't necessarily have to be the smartest guy in the room, but I also had the ability to find really good people and surround myself with really good people. And that wasn't hard. So I fell in love with the Marines. We had an opportunity to do some unique things across my career, from Desert Shield, Desert Storm, all the way up through Going back into Iraq in 2006 or so, ESCS 6, and everything in between. And so it has been a great ride with a great opportunities to lead, a great opportunity. I got two master's degrees in, in the Marine Corps because they gave me an opportunity to go back and study and meet, learn more about my trade. So it's been an experience of helping me to be a better person, a better husband. I could have been a better father, and I apologize to my kids because I spent way too much time being a good Marine, that sometimes I forgot how to be a good father. But, but in all those accounts, the Marine Corps made me a better person. So it was easy to continue for 38 uh, years of active service. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, sir. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've observed in, in every document that I've read about you or every video that I've watched is just the humility and leadership that you always bring to organizations and whether it was cyber command or whether it was the defense intelligence agency, the organizations always spoke about that humility and leadership and being able to attribute success to the organizations. And I appreciate you, you sharing that with us. The next question that I'd love to ask you is, you've been very vocal about the impact of receiving sponsorship from phenomenal leaders and allies who don't necessarily look like you. Some of the folks that you mentioned included General Jim Amos, Joe Dumford. Can you share the impact that the support of these amazing individuals had on your career as well as your personal life? I'll give you two data points on uh, uh, General Jim Amos. Uh, when I got selected uh, for 
Brigadier General, I reported to headquarters Marine Corps. And uh, General Amos at the time was the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. And he said, how in the world did you get to be a general officer? And I don't know who you are. And that was kind of my approach was just get the job done. No attention on me. Just, just make stuff happen. So I made it to Brigadier General with a uh, force. And the Marine Corps only has 88 general officers. So for him to say that, you know, I'm surprised because I don't know who you are. Uh, was pretty pretty interesting because we know who our, our colonels are. We're going to make Brigadier General someday. On the back end of uh, the, the time with uh, General Amos, he said to me, if I knew how good you were, I would have ridden you like a rented mule. And uh, so I'm, I'm glad you didn't know who I was because I'm not sure I want to be ridden at heart. But I, was, I, I remember going into the two-star promotion board and all the three stars are coming up to me and saying, uh, man, we just, we're so impressed. Your stock has never been higher. And they kept singing my praises. And guess what? The two-star selection board came out and my name wasn't on that list. And I thought, wow, my stock's that high and I can't get selected for a major general. What do I need to do? And Jim Amos pulled me aside and he said, don't worry about a thing. You're going to be just fine. We're going to take care of you. And on my next evaluation, he simply wrote in ink, promote him now. And I got picked up the, the second time. And, you know, your two-star board is your last uh, selection board. Everything from there on is uh, nominative. So from making two-star very quickly, we got uh, third star. All the guys who were selected the year before, I passed them up for the third star. And, and so it, it worked out. But it was guys like that who recognized and wrote the right things. A simple thing by the commandant of the Marine Corps that says, promote him now, speaks volumes to the board that says, guess what, guys, promote him now. And, and it wasn't just the, the Jim Amos. It was the Joe Dunfords who found time to sit down and talk to me and guide me. On the civilian side, there's a guy by the name of Jim Clapper, who was the former director of national intelligence. He was the former director of DIA. That guy has been just a phenomenal mentor and guide. And I can't tell you, the, the Jim Clapper story is, I'm sound asleep in London in the middle of the night and I get a, a phone call and the operator says, hey, sir, there's a Jim Clapper who wants to talk to you. Will you take the call? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll take the call from Jim Clapper. And he became almost the first guy in almost every circumstance to congratulate me on promotion, congratulate me on selection for something. Well, when he screened me for the director of DIA, the interview session went something like this. Hey, Vince, what's going on? How are you doing? Uh, what do you have planned for the weekend? Um, okay, I'll, I'll talk to you on Monday. And I thought, that's a strange interview. I, it, there wasn't any hard questions. But he was one of those who I worked for. I developed a relationship with me. And he was always the guy who's going forward and going, hey, you need to pick Vince Stewart for the following thing. The agency review team, for instance, I talked to him this morning. He's the guy who threw my name in the hat for uh, doing that. So I've had uh, some great friends and mentors who are willing to put uh, their reputation on the line. And at the end of the day, though, I still had to deliver. So. So one, one quick follow-up question that I wanted to ask to that, sir. I know a lot of folks, myself included, Sometimes it's, it's, it's tough feeling like you can find a mentor or find a sponsor 
what, what's your piece of advice for folks that may struggle in making that ask? You know, they, they realize they've plateaued at a level. They're trying to figure out how to get to that next level, how to get their name out there. What's your advice or recommendation for folks like that? Uh, don't do what I did. That's my recommendation. Because I, I found sometimes I was too proud to ask for help. I, I felt like I, if I wasn't grinding away and getting it done on my own, then it's, it's too much to turn to someone and go, hey, hey I'm struggling. And, and I'll tell you where that came from. I reported to a, a new unit, new to an environment, and I reached out to a, 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 a peer who had been in the unit for a number of years and was regarded as the best in the business. And I turned to him and I said, hey, I'm new to this. Can you help me kind of find my way? And his response was, I figured it out on my own, so can you. And th that, that probably set me off more than anything else that I would never turn to someone uh, for help in this business. But I would argue that you, you've got two different things that you're looking at. One, uh, and you touched on this, someone who could be a great example and a great role model that you can study and go, okay, I'd like to be like this person. If that role model or uh, is in your proximity, don't ever be too hesitant to go, okay, hey, sir, I, I, I kind of followed your career. I would love to get your advice and uh, direction on what to do next. And maybe, maybe I'll be able to live up to whatever standard you have that defines a mentor. And I think the mentor relationship is different than the example and, and uh, uh, relationship. But reach out to those individuals that you admire, especially if they're in close proximity. Don't bug the heck out of them. I've got one uh, young man who bugs the heck out of me and it just, it just go, okay, you are not the only person in my life. I, got, I know, but, but back off just a little bit. Give me some breathing room. But don't be, don't be hesitant to reach out and ask for help. Sometimes that's the message that people need to hear, just plain and simple is don't be too proud to ask for help. And I include myself in that, which is why I wanted to ask that question, but I appreciate you just making it plain for us. So if you don't mind, I'd like to transition to the topic of leadership real quick. I know you've got a chance to help some phenomenally impactful positions, one of which was the 20th director of the, the Defense Intelligence Agency. You were the first African-American to hold that position under the President Obama administration. Uh, and there was a quote that, that, I, that I found that you shared in 2015 when you took over in that role. And the quote was that we, referring to the Defense Intelligence Agency, are the premier all-source intelligence agency that creates intelligent advantages for our warfighters. I don't know if that's who we are right now, but by the time we leave, I hope you all believe that's what we do. And the reason that I wanted to ask you particularly about that quote is I'd love to hear more about how you've instilled hope, how you've instilled a sense of commitment and a, and a, and a sense of excellence within each one of the organizations that you led, because that seems to be a very consistent theme throughout the course of your career. So how have you been able to do that? Yeah, first, uh, first of all, you really have to believe that because you've got to walk the walk. You know, you, I used to tell my commander, every commander has a commander's intent or leadership principles or ideas. But as your workforce reads that, they better be able to see that in your daily walk. Otherwise, it's like, yeah, I see what he's written, but that's not the life that he lives. 
And so you got to genuinely believe that because folks will cut through that fairly quickly. So if you don't believe that your organization is going to be the premier and you want, you want your organization, whether it's a private sector or military, you want it to be the top number one or two entities in the world. You know, if you're General Electric, uh, being number 57 is not kind of cool. You got, you know, I go back to Jack uh, Welsh. If you are not number one or two in your sector, you are failing. It's that binary. Uh, so once you identify that I want to be the premier thing, how do you set the conditions? How do you set the workforce? How do you communicate? You know, because what makes an organization fail? They lack a vision. They're not organized correctly for that vision. They've not aligned the right people to connect to the vision and uh, the organization, and they have poor leadership. If you have any of those, any mismatch of those, you cannot be successful. And then probably the most important thing, and I guess it's, it goes back to, can you walk the walk, walk the talk, is how do you communicate consistently to the workforce? One of the most important thing a leader has to do is be a good storyteller. And so you gotta be able to tell the story of your organization. And I usually break, try to break it down in my mind in this simple way. In every story, there is a villain. There is a victim or someone who's being uh, attacked by the villain and there's a hero. And my organization will always be the hero in the story. Somewhere along the line, we're gonna kill the villain and we're gonna marry the princess. But we're gonna ride off as the heroes in that organization. And that requires you to have a clear focus of who the villains are. You gotta have a clear idea of how you're gonna defeat that villain. And you got a clear idea of what the end state looks like. And then you communicate, you align the forces to do that, you organize for it. And, and let me tell you, one of the greatest challenges of DIA is we suffered from reorganizational fatigue because every director comes in, wants to make a mark, and so they want to reorganize. And sometimes reorganization is not the answer. The process is the answer. Leadership is the answer. On one of the interviews that I did, I told uh, the interviewer, if you want someone who's going to be a super analyst, that's not me. If you want someone who will lead and guide the organization and instill uh, morale and, and excellence, I might be able to do that. So when I talk about organization, sometimes this is process more than it is reorganizing the deck chairs. I hope that came close to answering. Oh, that was, that was spot on, sir. I'll tell you, you can mess around and get me fired up over here. You know, just, uh, just listening to the way that you're able to inspire people by giving them a deeper sense of purpose and vision. And I think as I look back on all the organizations, like I said, DIA included, it was so evident to see that people understood the role that they played in that story. And they felt a sense of purpose. They felt like they were going to be the hero that was going to go in and make the world a better place because they were a part of their team. So before, before, oh, go you go on, before you go on though, I mean, um, not everybody bought into that on day one. Uh, that's why it's so important to be consistent in communication. And not everybody, all of our customers, and I use that term carefully, wanted us to do some of the things that we were trying to do when I, when I took over. Uh, a heavy portion of DIA was focused on counterterrorism. I started asking questions about why aren't we looking at China and Russia and 
uh, North Korea and everybody said, that's not what we do. Well, our primary mission was to understand how our potential adversaries are organized for combat. What are the systems that they have, how well their equipment operates, how far, how fast, how high. And you certainly weren't gonna do that by flying 90 predator missions over Afghanistan. So it's the, the leader has got to have not only the, the vision, but the commitment to the vision and organize for that commitment, otherwise there's no chance to succeed. After the murder of George Floyd, you wrote a tremendously powerful and moving opinion column titled, Please Take Your Knee Off Our Necks So We Can Breathe. Can you please share with the audience what compelled you to write that article, sir? This is about a one hour answer, so uh, I'll try to abbreviate it just a little bit. When I, when I saw the video, you know, you, you see bits and pieces of it, but I watched the full video. And I looked at the eyes of the two men in the video. At the start of the video, you could see the fear and dread and great alarm and concern in the eyes of George Floyd. You could also see in the eyes of Officer Covan the, the anger and dominance and uh, to some level cavalier approach. And then as you watch the video and you can see a man dying and crying for his mother and hope drains from his eyes. And the final image is of a lifeless body of George Floyd. And yet the same defiant, uh, overconfident, cavalier look on Officer Coban's face. I've spent much of my career flying under the radar, but when I watched that murder unfold, my immediate response was, I can no longer be silent. I'd never taken a position openly on social or political issues. And I wasn't planning to at that point, but I knew at that moment that I could no longer be silent because we'd seen just so many cases throughout our history where men, young, some older black men of color died of the hands of those who were supposed to serve and protect. And the trend line was horrible. And so I, I knew I couldn't be silent. But I don't know if everybody could understand why there is so much despair and concern and, and protest in the streets. And I don't advocate for the violence of the protest, but the protest that says we have got to do something different because this trend and this pattern is, is not what we are about. We can certainly do better as Americans. So I started to try to get folks to understand what it feels like. And I really wanted to be emotional about it what it feels like to be a, a person of color dealing with uh, injustice in America. And so I wrote uh, the op-ed, actually I wrote just the, my thoughts and my feelings and uh, shared it with my wife and she said, you need to publish this. And it really just wanted to open up. What was it like if you walked into a, a store and you're immediately suspected of shoplifting? What was it like for my children to endure violence, actions, injustice because of the color of their skin? 
what's it like as I went to the university, as I joined the Marine Corps, et cetera, the times when I was uh, experienced overt racism or uh, microaggression. And I just uh, wanted to open that up uh, to others who are not uh, men or women of color. But there was also on the back end, the idea that there's hope in America. The constitution that I draw so much uh, energy from speaks about equality for all, justice for all and life for all. And it was important to say, this is still what I believe in. And oh, by the way, I, now that I'm a person of privilege, because people call me, people wanna know my opinion. And I don't know how you define privilege and I'm gonna shut up here in a minute. I'm gonna give you maybe something to help you define privilege. But I recognized that I was not successful because of just my hard work. I was successful as we talked about because I had mentors and sponsors who helped me along the way. And so I just wanted to open up to people we ended up putting the, the article on LinkedIn. It got great, uh, interesting reaction, almost all positive. And then we did the op-ed in task and purpose. So let me, let me end this way, because here's the question I ask people today. And the question is, if I told you that in the morning, when you awake, if you're, if you're a Caucasian person, in the morning when you awake, you will be an African-American male between the ages of 17 and 25. Would you immediately go to bed because you're so excited about the prospect of waking up being a person of color? Or would you go, I am not going to sleep tonight because I don't want to wake up in that position. And I ask the same thing of our uh, people of color. If you had the opportunity and you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to be uh, uh, a Caucasian, would you rush to bed or, or, or not? But I, I will change the question this way, because I have some people like my age who go, yeah, that'd be an interesting experience. I wouldn't mind seeing what that's like. To... What if your son, your 14-year-old son or grandson, would be the person who would wake up tomorrow morning as a person of color? And I don't mean Tiger Woods or LeBron James or the, no, just a regular old Black dude. Would you encourage that uh, your son or grandson to go to sleep early and be ready to go tomorrow morning? And that doesn't mean that you're racist, it doesn't mean you're a bigot, it doesn't mean you hate, but it will mean something, and maybe that something is just privilege, that you're treated differently because of the color of your skin. I don't have that option. I will wake up tomorrow morning, I'll be a black person. I'll go to bed tomorrow night, I'll be a person of color. I will live the rest of my life and I will die and be buried as a person of color. And all of what comes with that, the history, the pain, the suffering, the opportunities, I don't get to choose. And what at the end of the day, all of those who are in this, what we sometimes call underrepresented demographics, all we want is a fair opportunity to succeed. Just a fair opportunity to succeed. Okay, Kenny, I'm going to stop because uh, I'll get too emotional if I go much further. If you don't mind, I actually just want to pause on that for a second. Because I think sometimes, you know, people will say something very profound, people will 
give you insight. People will have the courage to open up their heart and give you a vulnerable and authentic view of themselves. And it's easy to just keep going in the moment. So I just wanted to pause for a moment to let everything that you just said resonate, marinate. And, and I just want to offer up to the group one more time. If you have not read the op-ed, I would strongly encourage you to take two to three minutes and give it a read because Sir, what touched me so profoundly from my heart is that I feel like in a very public way, your voice represented the voices of so many parents, so many children, as a, as a father of two children, the, the fears and concerns that we go to sleep with every night and wake up with every morning, you put them into words in a way that I have not seen in a very long time, if ever. And, and I think what was so profound about the way that you did it is even the way that you finish is filled with such hope you know it's filled with such hope and a deep belief in the power of the american dream as long as we are willing to fight and to live up to and espouse to the potential of the words that are in our founding documents so for that, sir, I just, like I said, I wanted to pause, let that moment breathe for a second, and thank you for having the, uh, the authenticity and vulnerability to share that with our group today. So with that, I know we've got some questions coming in. I want to be respectful of our audience members. We have a great question from Kayla Bassett, and the question that she asked is that the feeling of being the only fill in the blank, whether it's person of color, woman, veteran, et cetera, in the room, you know, that might not be new to some of the people that are listening right now, and it's easy to feel like you need to suppress your uniqueness in order for your voice to be heard. How did you persevere and embrace your identity as a Black man over your 38 career in a predominantly white officer corps? You know, that's a great question, and I think I've used it someplace else. Uh, sometimes I left me in the parking lot. You know, because you didn't want to rock the boat or you didn't want to draw attention. So the Vince Stewart, when he locked the car and walked across the parking lot, was a very different Vince Stewart, you know, when, when you walked into the office. And I don't know how much that impacted me, my psyche over time, because you're almost, you're almost denying yourself. But if you have the fear that if you really are true, and you call out the microaggression and you call out, uh, you know, I would never have gotten the opportunity to be a three-star. I would have been viewed as some radical, angry black dude who was trying to overthrow your organization. So you quickly go, okay, that, that one stung, but I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna touch that one. I'm just gonna keep rolling. So that, and that becomes a really personal decision because Ambition sometimes will cause you to not be who you really are. But you sometimes don't recognize that until you can look back reflectively and go, I really should have just punched that guy in the nose because he said such and such. But if you do that, you're done. You know, Vince Stewart, Captain Stewart, Major Stewart, Lieutenant Colonel Stewart, Colonel Stewart would not have had the same impact writing what I did as Lieutenant General, former Director DIA, so maybe, maybe that becomes, okay, I'm, I'm justifying why I didn't stand up and speak up earlier because now I have more voice and it's resonate more. 
so I guess there's a tactful way of going, be true to yourself at the end of the day. And there's a tactful way to address those microaggression that says, you're saying or doing things that ultimately underlies uh, some hateful ideas. And I'm going to call you out on it. And then let's have a dialogue about how we go forward. Well, I appreciate that, Sarah. And the one of the things that I appreciate about the way that you shared that is how much of an individual moment-by-moment decision that that is. And to understand that it's going to be different at different stages in your life and stages in your career. And just being able to step back and make that assessment is something that I appreciate you taking this time to share. Uh, if you don't mind... No, oh, very, ahead, very, very early in my career, someone said to me, and maybe it was because I was taking on too much, you need to figure out which hill you want to die on. And uh, you just go, okay, that's, that's interesting. But the idea was not everything is worth fighting, but decide which hill you really did go, okay, I'm going to fight to the death because this is so egregious. And uh, that just came to me because I can't think of what it was that I was fighting all the time, but I just remembered an individual saying, you need to determine which hill you're ready to die on and not fight on any hill, shed blood on every hill. I, I have... I have one more question that comes from Raphael Rolinge. And he says, as a nation that's still seeking to deal with some of our troubled past, some organizations still resist change. This one's a little bit closer to home. He's, he's talking about the Marine Corps and would like to know, why do you feel that they still have not yet promoted a person of color to the rank of four-star general? And what do you believe it would take uh, to make that achievement happen? Well, for starters, you need to have some three-star color that uh, compete to be four-star color. I got I got beat up pretty badly because I left, and there was a lot of folks who had ideas that I was going to be the first to be a four-star. But it was time for me to go, go home. And you know, the Marine Corps has done a really good job on the enlisted side. When you look at the senior enlisted in our Marine Corps, you see a really good, diverse, well-represented uh, entity. But we have not done as well in the officer corps, usually somewhere between six, maybe eight at the max of the, out of the 88. Many of them don't get the, the types of jobs. If you're not going to be a, a uh, Marine Expeditionary Force Commander and you're not going to be a deputy at uh, one of the combatant commands, you're not going to compete well for the fourth star. We also don't compete well in the joint arena, which is in many cases, that's where our four stars land. So we don't recruit enough at the base. We don't sustain enough folks at the middle. Therefore, we don't have enough at the top of the pyramid. I know, and I talked to him just this past week, I know the commandant currently is committed to doing something different. We will see if, you know, if, if you only have one brigadier general every year, that's a African-American or person of color or a woman, you're just uh, maintaining the flow of people coming in and out. So if you only get one and then you lose one and you get two, you would never pick two on a Brigadier General Board. So it'll be interesting if you see this board that comes out and all of a sudden there are two, then you'll start seeing, okay, maybe we're trying to do something different. And if you get two and only one leave and you put that to those two in the right jobs and you groom them, and you have to do this, you have to be purposeful about it, not quota driven by, by it, not affirmative action driven by it, but you gotta, be, you gotta be determined. It won't happen organically. When I guided my colonels and uh, my colonels are doing great, they get picked up for Brigadier General. 
I picked people who I thought were talented. I put them in the right jobs. I made sure they got uh, sponsored and mentored and guided and their reports were good. Two of them are African-American and one is white. So it's not like I was just taking care of the brothers. So taking care of the good quality colonels, put them in the right jobs and give them opportunity to be successful. And, and that's what I'm trying to encourage our senior leadership to join the Marine Corps these days. Well, sir, I'd like to just thank you for personally planting those seeds. I know, just as you said, it, it takes that progression in order to see that change that we're hoping for. So I thank you for just planting those seeds so we can move and continue on that trajectory. Um, hang, hang, on, I, hang on a second, because I want to make sure this is part of the record. Okay, I've, got so four, I've got four general officers in the Marine Corps intelligence community that I purposefully planted. Uh, Bill Seeley, who is a uh, Vietnamese American, Jerry Carter, African American, Demetri Henry, African American, and Mike Rowan, Caucasian, uh, who's now a three star. But again, purposefully designed in their career so that they can be successful. Mm. I didn't want to forget Bill Seeley. No, no, I appreciate this, Ron. That's actually a great segue. I think we have time for one, maybe two more questions. The question that I, that I have for me, and it's, it's so appropriate that you talked about the importance of sponsorship. This question comes from Jacqueline Tame. And she says, there are a few people in, in, in my life that have profoundly influenced my thinking, my actions, and my professional trajectory. I feel as if though I have nothing to give back to those people that is sufficient thanks beyond paying it forward and not squandering those gifts. How do you think about repaying or sufficiently thanking your most influential sponsors and mentors? Did you say that came from Jackie Tame? Yes, sir, it did. <laughs> okay. Jackie knows the answer to this question. She just wants me to tell everybody else because one, the one thing I've always told folks when they go, okay, what can I do? The only thing I ever ask for folks is just pay for it. Find somebody else out there, lift them up, encourage them, provide them guide, guidance and mentorship. And if you do one or two and they do one or two, all of a sudden you've got what I call the Stuart tree. You know, I've got folks that I, I consider, you know, uh, if, if you're a football fan, you know, the uh, Bill Walsh tree, the folks who coached on the Bill Walsh who've gone on to great success because of either they were talented when they, he joined the, they joined the staff or he helped them to develop. I like to call my Stuart tree a group of colonels and lieutenant colonels. I probably have a couple of majors in there that I spend an awful lot of time uh, just talking to, guiding, mentor, encouraging, being there. I got a call from one uh, this week who's going through some family uh, issues. And it feels good to know that they trust you enough that when they're having a difficult time, that they're comfortable enough to pick up the phone and go, I just, I just need somebody to talk to about this. So grab someone who looks like they're struggling. And I know, by the way, it's really easy to mentor the top 10% talented folks. The real core of this is how do you find those folks in the middle of the pack who just are quiet, just kind of keep grinding away, but, you, but don't have anybody that can help. Find that middle of the pack person and encourage them. DIA used to be really proud of the fact that it's tougher to become a DIA intern than it is to get into Stanford. That means you have to have a, a perfect grade point average, perfect record. 
And I reminded everybody at that organization that Vince Stewart was a, a C student. Colin Powell was a C student. He, he found his passion and he found folks who would encourage him. And lo and behold, Colin Powell. Vince Stewart was a C student. Where's that C student that's in your organization that you are missing? that you could reach out to and help and encourage and help them to find their passion and watch and see what the history brings. So easy to, easy to lead the top 10%, easy to guide and mentor the top 10%. Go find your C student and bring that one on. We appreciate you guys sharing your time with us here in the Breakline Arena. My name is Sophia Bowden. Thank you guys for joining us. And once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, the director of Breakline Apex. If you enjoyed what you heard today, we only ask that you do one of three things. Like, follow, subscribe, maybe four, because if you want to rate, that wouldn't be a bad thing either. I think you should that, rate. Go Rate and review. We need those reviews to help getting the good word out. Thank you so much for your time today, folks. Until next time, we are signing out from the Breakline HQ. See you guys next Tuesday. Sergeant First Class, Mark Wood.